Welcome to The Heart of the House, the podcast where we explore the text, times, and trapdoors of Shirley Jackson's masterpiece. I'm Kelly. And I'm Mackenzie. And over the next few weeks, we'll be taking an in-depth look at The Haunting of Hill House. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Heart of the House. Before we get started today, I just want to warn you that there is a content warning for suicide and child abuse, which will be pretty consistent themes throughout the episode and, in fact, throughout the rest of the novel. So, as always, if that is not something that you are up for hearing about today, turn us off or listen to us another day. We will not take it personally. Prioritize yourself. We are also a blog as well as a podcast, and if you'd like to access our show notes, as always, you can do so at theheartofthehouse.blog. Enjoy the episode, everybody. Okay. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mackenzie. How are we doing? We are doing swell. Excited to be back. We are in separate places because it's spring break, and I am not feeling particularly breaky because there's always a million things that need to be done. Mackenzie, are you feeling breaky? I honestly am. Um, I read a romance novel on Monday, which is my favorite activity, is to start a romance novel in the beginning of the day and end it at night. Um, And I also got all of my grading done. That has been a dark cloud over my head for the past, like, six weeks, honestly, is just the grading was piling up. So I finished it. So I do feel quite breaky. I am not breaky. I am broken. Um, That's good. I've been so my goal for this break was to have one day where I did not do a single thing related to either my own work or teaching and so far have failed. But somehow, even in all that, I haven't gotten the grading done. So. Brutal. Mackenzie, can you give the folks at home a rundown of what happened last time before we move on into our pages for today? Sure. So last time we found our our motley crew of pals um, continuing their journey through Hill House. We learned a lot about the background of Hill House, the kind of inhabitants that may or may not have left their mark on Hill House or who may have been marked by Hill House. Mm. And, you know, spooky vibes all around. Great. Thank you. So today we are going to cover from pages, I believe it is 68 to 87 in the Penguin version. If you're not following along in the Penguin version, it's from the beginning of chapter four to, I believe, the end of chapter four, section three. So um, whatever version you have, it will be broken down into sections. And so that is where we're going today. As I said last time, there are unfortunately no ghostly manifestations in this episode. There will be some next time, I promise. However, (laughs) this episode does start really showing us maybe some of the cracks that are becoming apparent in our characters. So Mackenzie, can you start us off, please, and read that first paragraph in chapter four? Eleanor awakened to find the blue room gray and colorless in the morning rain. She found that she had thrown the quilt off during the night and had finished sleeping in her usual manner with her head on the pillow. It was a surprise to find that she had slept until after eight, and she thought that it was ironic that the first good night's sleep she had had in years had come to her in Hill House. 
Lying in the blue bed, looking up into the dim ceiling with its remote carved pattern, she asked herself, half asleep still, what did I do? Did I make a fool of myself? Were they laughing at me? Okay. Thoughts on this? I I mean, I said this to you before we started, but I, like, find this to be so relatable. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe I was so harsh on Eleanor because I relate to Eleanor. Like, I just totally kind of understand waking up and having that feeling that, I behaved in a way that I couldn't understand in the moment. And now it's all become clear how foolish I've been. The other thing that I really think of when I read these pages is they were drinking pretty heavily the night before. And so Eleanor is maybe experiencing what we would now know as anxiety. When you're anxious because you're hungover and you don't know how you acted. (laughs) Not that I would know. I've never had that experience. Mackenzie, have you? Of course I have. Okay, It's well, very relatable. Yeah, I've never drunk any alcohol ever in my life. So Eleanor is experiencing some anxiety. And the way that she consoles herself is that she says, you're a very silly baby, Eleanor, she told herself, as she did every morning. What? Again, I love this. I thought that was so funny. Um, and also because, um, I went on a vacation last summer and, um, my friends were a little bit more active than I wanted to be. Like I wanted to have a fashion, like fun, relaxing vacation and they wanted to have an active vacation. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the vacation, they kept calling me big baby. They were like, what does big baby want to do? And so again, I just felt really related to Eleanor where she was like, you're a very silly baby. I'm like, I'm a very silly baby. (laughs) But do you tell yourself that every morning? Um, I feel like I don't actually have something I say to myself every morning. I'm also wondering whether this is like a an Eleanor's mom. Yeah. Leftover. Like it's something she would say to Eleanor. So that's why Eleanor says to herself. So again, that's kind of sad, but I still found it very charming. Yeah, I think I find it really bizarre. You're a very silly baby, Kelly. Like, what would be the effect of telling myself that every morning for 32 years? I've only lived 30 of them, so check back in two years. So Eleanor wakes up. She had a good night's sleep. What do you think about that? I was just thinking about that as as I was reading. I'm almost wondering whether we think about Hill House as this place that is hard to be in and that makes someone, like, the worst of themselves. Mm -hmm. What if for Eleanor she just like loves it and it's like her truest self and she that she's finally able to relax in hill house because it's as bizarre and messed up as she is enter once again theodora theodora is splashing around in the adjoining bathroom that the their two rooms share and she's hungry so one thing that we're going to see over and over again in the pages for today is that theodora is constantly hungry what do you think of that I guess, you know, it makes you think what else is she devouring, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of energy, in terms of the people around her, um, right? Kind of constantly taking in and like keeping to herself, right? Yeah. Yeah. And remember we talked about earlier, a couple of episodes ago, the devouring mother figure. This idea oh, yeah. that your mother not only gives birth to you, but then she consumes you. 
And and I think the opposite of that too, right? Like the baby is constantly feeding off of the mother. So like yeah. if we think about either configuration of Eleanor and Theodora as mother and baby, especially Eleanor's big baby. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like how much can you take from the person who's like constructing your selfhood by looking at you and being around you? Eleanor, as I said, is constantly referred to by Theodora as baby. And there's more of that coming up in these pages. So Theodora is not a vacuum, but she tends to suck up attention and resources and food wherever she goes. So Eleanor is looking out the window. It's raining. She thinks it's charming. She wondered if she was the first person ever to find Hill House charming. And then she thought, chilled, do they all think that the first morning? She shivered and found herself at the same time unable to account for the excitement she felt, which made it difficult to remember why it was so odd to wake up happy in Hill House. Yeah. I feel like Eleanor is, because of her history and because of the way that she grew up, it's like... It's like when you're 18 and you realize your parents are people like she's just beginning to understand that like everyone else is also a like constructed selfhood. Mm -hmm. So she like doesn't trust any of her impulses or emotions because she's like, well, this is how everybody feels like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's this weird like she's just beginning to understand this at like 32. Yeah. Yeah. Eleanor loves to feel that other people are feeling what she's feeling. And in fact, a lot of the horror which we see coming out in these pages is that she realizes that the others don't feel what she's feeling. Okay, so Eleanor is taking too long to get ready. Theodora is pounding on the door. I'll say that again. Theodora is pounding on the door. That will make sense next time. Saying, I'm going to starve to death. Sing before breakfast, you'll cry before night, Eleanor told herself, because she had been singing softly, in delay, there lies no plenty. I feel like, again, this is a connection between me and Eleanor, that Eleanor is always trying to, like, bargain with the universe. So yeah. this idea, she's trying to, like, anticipate stuff that's going to make her life harder. I love that. She's trying to bargain with the universe. And this brings up something that it took me a couple of readings to realize God is not really in this book. For a book that deals so much with death, we don't really see anybody ever tell Eleanor, oh, your mother's in heaven or any of that stuff. It's just not there. And so we talked last time about Shirley's husband's religion. Remember, he was Jewish. Shirley herself, um, I don't know that much about her religious background. I do know she dabbled in Christian science or she had relatives who did or something like that. But in fact, God, heaven, all that stuff, to my knowledge, at least, does not appear really anywhere in Shirley's work. There's a lot of supernatural stuff, but we never really deal with God himself. Okay. What I think is interesting about that, too, is that it marks a deviation from, like, Gothic history. So, like, um, Dr. Montague represents a kind of traditional, like, figure or trope within mm -hmm. the Gothic of the older professor who knows about this supernatural thing and is instructing like the troop of youngsters, right? We see yeah. that in Dracula. We see that in Carmilla. Oh, yeah. um, but those figures are always also religious, right? It's like, how can we fit this 
supernatural being like Dracula into a religious framework that coexists with a scientific framework. So like taking that religious framework out, it's like, how do we explain this evil? It's like, well, we're just going to vibe it out, right? As opposed to someone like, what's his name in Dracula, whose name is escaping me. Van Helsing. Um, Van Helsing, who is like, this is the supreme evil of the Christian universe. How can we use science to eradicate it? We get a little bit of Dr. Montague and science in these pages, which we'll get to, but you're right. He never says this is the Antichrist or Jesus will help us or anything like that. We have a very almost pagan view of religion in Shirley Jackson. All right. So Mackenzie, can you please read for us the paragraph on the bottom of 69? Nice. That begins Eleanor was thinking, and then that'll carry us over to page 70. Eleanor was thinking that it had been a very long time since she had dressed to look like a stray sunbeam or been so hungry for breakfast or arisen so aware, so conscious of herself, so deliberate and tender in her attentions. She even brushed her teeth with a niceness she could not remember ever feeling before. It is all the result of a good night's sleep, she thought. Since mother died, I must have been sleeping even more poorly than I realized. Aren't you ready yet? Coming, coming, Eleanor said and ran to the door, remembered that it was still locked, and unlocked it softly. Theodora was waiting for her in the hall, vivid in the dullness, in gaudy plaid. Looking at Theodora, it was not possible for Eleanor to believe that she ever dressed, or washed, or moved, or ate, or slept, or talked without enjoying every minute of what she was doing. Perhaps Theodora never cared at all what other people thought of her. What do you think of Eleanor's assessment of Theodora? I think it's fairly typical, you know, looking at someone who you admire and kind of making up this subjectivity that feels impossible to you, right? So like for someone like Eleanor and for most people, you see someone who kind of takes up again, all the energy of the room, who's Mm -hmm. always the center of any room, who seems confident and seems, you know, totally at peace with themselves, but also like enjoying the world. Yeah. And you think, wow, this must be really easy for them. And it's both this kind of disbelief that anybody like that could exist, but also this hope that if someone else is like that, maybe you could be like that eventually, right? And obviously no one is actually like that. No one can be that kind of projection that Eleanor thinks about Theodora. Theo mentions that she has been up for hours and she started her morning by talking to Luke and the doctor who were on the lawn and she was talking to them out the window. They started without me, Eleanor thought. Tomorrow I will wake up earlier and be there to talk from the window too. She's just so sad, isn't she? She's like, any moment that I'm not with people is a moment where they're laughing at me, right? And it's so self-centered too, right? To think of that. It's just about you when there's this whole like creepy house that they can talk about. But again, I think it's really relatable when you're in this new group of people and especially for someone like Eleanor, who, again, just like is just becoming a self, you know, like I empathize with her. Yeah. Later on in these pages, Eleanor worries, you know, what if I get locked in the attic? And Theodora, a little bit annoyedly, says nobody wants to leave you behind anywhere. So these are the first instances. They've been together for a little bit less than 24 hours, but these are the first times where we see Eleanor starting to get on people's nerves. 
could you see how she could get on people's nerves or are you team Eleanor? Um, I'm, t- I am like team Eleanor in that I feel like I am the Eleanor in any situation. I'm like, are you guys talking about me? Are you mad at me? Yeah. But I also get how that's super frustrating because I think it's supposed to be, at least at this point, it's supposed to be like a silly spooky time. Mm-hmm. Like, especially for like Luke and Theo, like they're just like here to vibe and to like, you know, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so for Eleanor to constantly be like, this is going to dictate the rest of my life. And the way that you think about me is going to dictate the way I think about myself is like, whoa, like we just met, like we're just having fun. Yeah. So one thing that just jumped out at me as I was looking at the pages now is Theodora constantly refers to the house as dirty. On the bottom of page 70, she says foul, filthy house. A little bit later on, she says it's a filthy, rotten house. This is something that I first picked up on because I used to teach this in conjunction with Macbeth. And Macbeth is very preoccupied with the ideas of contamination and foulness. What do you think about that? Is the house actually dirty? To me, what stood out more than the dirtiness was like, I mean, they talk about it, right? The wrongness of the house. Everything is just a little bit off. Yeah. And so I feel like that for me was more what called out to me. But I guess also if you're thinking about this is a house lived in and owned or that was lived in by wealthy people, there is an expectation of like cleanliness. Mm -hmm. And who's in charge of the dirt at Hill House? My girl. Yes, Mrs. Dudley. Mrs. Dudley, as we see, is very, very good at her job. But there's one room in the house that she's not that great at keeping clean. So finally, Eleanor and Theodora start down the stairs. They have a hard time finding the dining room because of the way the house is set up. But they do eventually get there. And the doctor tells them, you'll never believe this now, of course, but three minutes ago, those doors were wide open. We left them open so you could find your way. We sat here and watched them swing shut just before you called. So then Luke says, Kippers, good morning. I hope you ladies are the Kipper kind. Now, we talked about this over text because I wasn't entirely sure. Mackenzie, what is your read of this line? Well... You have you did you read the stuffed part? No, we're getting there. Okay. Well, that <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a horny thing for him to say. Yeah, and Shirley loves italics. One thing I'm looking at here is I hope you ladies are in italics the kipper kind. Yeah. What I don't I don't know what to think about that. He could, why is why is that what's italicized? He could be saying, you know, are you lesbians or are you or possibly a sexual partner for me, either of you? So, yes, he does make a joke about kippers, which are sausages for the non-fancy people out there. And it gets even more explicit later. So this is Eleanor thinking they'd come through the darkness of one night. They met morning in Hill House and they were a family greeting one another with easy informality and going to the chairs they had used last night at dinner, their own places at the table. All right, so there's been a bit of a discussion off mic about what exactly a kipper is. I have labored 30 years under the assumption that they are sausages, but Mackenzie, what did the internet turn up for you? It said it was a an oily fish. Yeah. I think the reason that I think it's a sausage is because, have you seen Young Frankenstein? No. So it's a Mel Brooks movie. 
And essentially it's like a parody of Frankenstein. And in the morning after their weird encounter with the monster, Gene Wilder, who plays Dr. Frankenstein, stabs a sausage and he hands it to somebody and he goes, Kipper? So I've always just thought that, but apparently it can mean either fish or sausage. So I am going to assume that Luke is in fact talking about sausages here. Breakfast sausages, it makes sense. Hi everybody, it's me, Kelly. I'm in the editing process right now. And as I edited, I realized that I was indeed wrong. And there goes Ruble jingling because he loves when I'm wrong. I have learned in the course of researching and editing this episode that a kipper is indeed always a fish. So one thing that you'll learn in academia is that you don't know everything, which unfortunately was news to me when I got here, but I have been enlightened and I would just like to formally apologize to Big Kipper and all the other souls that were doubtlessly emotionally mutilated by my not knowing what a kipper is. I sincerely apologize. I will learn from my mistake. Whether or not they are eating sausages, I do want to draw our attention to this passage that Eleanor is talking about where they're a family with their seats at the table. Thoughts about that? I mean, it just shows how little she understands what a family is and and she has these antiquated notions about, right, like, what does a family look like? Well, it's at the table. Yeah. And there's a father figure, right? Which we haven't really heard about her father at all. Yeah, because he died. So any kind of older man at a table, she's like, oh, it's a family dining room. You know, yeah. it's this idea of what a family is supposed to look like and what a family is supposed to feel like, even though they're just strangers. Sad. That, Sad. that would be Trump's evaluation of Eleanor. Sad. <laughs> okay. So Theodora says, I couldn't sleep. I was dreaming but dreaming about the wicked sister at the gates of Hill House. Eleanor, can you... Mackenzie? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Mackenzie, can you please read the selected blurb for us, please? I can't believe that happened. All right. Here we go, everybody. Eleanor reading. I dreamed about her, too, Eleanor said. She looked at the doctor and said suddenly, it's embarrassing to think about being afraid, I mean. We're all in it together, you know, Theodora said. It's worse if you try not to show it, the doctor said. Stuff yourself very full of kippers, Luke said. Then it will be impossible to feel anything at all. Eleanor felt as she had the day before that the conversation was being skillfully guided away from the thought of fear so very present in her own mind. Perhaps she was allowed to speak occasionally for all of them so that quieting her, they quieted themselves and could leave the subject behind them. Perhaps vehicle for every kind of fear, she contained enough for all. They are like children, she thought crossly, daring each other to go first, ready to turn and call names at whoever comes last. She pushed her plate away from her inside. Okay, many things happening at once here, one of which is that Ruble has started eating his dry food. So apologies for any crunching that you may hear. Mackenzie, what would you like to start with in this very bizarre blurb? Yeah, so 
First of all, there's the like repetitiveness of the dialogue tags, right? Hmm. We're all in it together, Theodora said. It's worse if you try not to show it, the doctor said. Stuff yourself very full of kippers, Luke said. It's this very like repetitive structure, which I think for someone like Jackson has to be on purpose, right? Hmm. To have that kind of rhythm. Um, And then there's the kind of reversal of instead of the doctor as the grown up and the three of them as children, suddenly she's, they're all children and they're all racing. And it's this kind of reversal of the way she thinks about herself. Yeah. This is one of two instances that I can think of that each character is given a chance to talk about fear. So later on, they'll talk about what they're most afraid of, but this is how they talk about dealing with fear. Theo, we're all in it together. The doctor, it's worse if you try not to show it. Luke, stuff yourself very, very full of kippers. What do you think about their approaches to dealing with fear? I find the doctors more, like the most interesting, the try not to, sh- or it's worse if you try not to show it. Because mm-hmm. in the way that they're responding to her, they are trying to get her not to show it, right? Like mm-hmm. they're trying to give her the solution to her fear, And Eleanor is trying to process that, like, it's embarrassing as an adult to kind of be afraid in this house that feels weird, but nothing has happened, right? Nothing has actually happened to make them afraid. And so she's thinking about her emotional response to being afraid. But then the doctor's like, it's better to talk about it, but like simultaneously trying to shut her up. So I think that is kind of interesting. Yeah. Or at least she perceives that he's trying to shut her up. So one thing that I think is really interesting is that Theo's approach to dealing with fear is we're all in it together, you know. I don't think that there's anything you could tell Eleanor that she more wants to hear than we're all in this together. Cue high school musical. And then Luke's approach to fear is stuff yourself full of kippers. So if a kipper is indeed a sausage, um, we can see where Luke's brain is going. Then Eleanor assumes that she is the vehicle for every type of fear. She contains enough fear for all. Therefore, they want to shut her up. Whether or not that's true, we'll see. So a little bit further down the page, they're talking about how hard it is to get around the house. And we're going to talk more about that. First, we explore the house, Eleanor said, too quickly, perhaps, because Theodora turned and looked at her curiously. I don't want to find myself left behind in an attic or something, Eleanor added uncomfortably. No one wants to leave you behind anywhere, Theodora said. Thoughts? I think kind of, right, she's getting annoyed. She's like, all right, we we get you think that you're going to be left behind, but that's not what's happening. Um, then constantly having to reassure someone gets annoying pretty quick. Yes. As somebody who has OCD and I can show you the doctor's note. So I'm not just saying, oh, I'm OCD, but yes, reassurance seeking is one of the signs of it. So this is the first time we see Theodora start to get a little bit bitchy. And as we see, Eleanor very quickly gets bitchy back. Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, at the bottom of page 72, we need to find out what to call the rooms down to the end of the page, please. 
We need to find out what to call the rooms, Theodora said. Suppose I told you, Luke, that I would meet you clandestinely in the second best drawing room. How would you ever know where to find me? You could keep whistling till I got there, Luke offered. Theodora shuddered. You would hear me whistling and calling you while you wandered from door to door, never opening the right one, and I would be inside, not able to find any way to get out and nothing to eat, Eleanor said unkindly. Boom. Thoughts. I thought, I think the, again, the tag is really funny. Eleanor said unkind. Oh, did I say, did I read it not unkindly? No, you said unkindly. Okay. I think that's how I was reading it. Um, Eleanor said unkindly. Um, insulting Theodora with something I think that she's not embarrassed about, right? Like Theodora's telling everyone she's hungry. Yeah. Shirley is really great at having characters say mean things to each other. So she can be wonderfully nasty. We see this a lot in the short stories and in novel form, particularly in the sundial. One of the characters in the sundial is introduced as wearing a dress that presumably fits her. And that's the narrative voice, not any character's voice. Very mean. Yes, very mean. Um, And that's part of the reason why I love the sundial so much is because the little glimpses of bitchiness that we get in Hill House, if you take that, make it an entire novel, set it at the end of the world, that's the sundial. Okay, so we've just seen Theodora and Eleanor snipe at each other a little bit subtly. And then the doctor starts talking about the layout of the house. So Mackenzie, can you read for us, please? Not as bad as all that, the doctor said easily. Actually, the ground floor is laid out in what I might almost call concentric circles of rooms. At the center is the little parlor where we sat last night. Around it, roughly, are a series of rooms. The billiard room, for instance, in a dismal little den entirely furnished in rose-colored satin. Okay, so he goes on. And I have now pulled up, although, of course, the folks at home can't see it. It's in the show notes, though, if you're interested. One of Shirley Jackson's drawings of the Hill House floor plan. This is something that she liked to do a lot. She did it for Hill House, and she did it for the sundial. Mackenzie, can you describe maybe for the people who aren't looking at what we're looking at, what we see here? So it's a big square with a circle on the right side where the tower and the library is. Um, And it's kind of divided, right? So there's the dining room, the conservatory, the drawing room. But it's not quite, it's like it's not concentric circles like the doctor is describing. I don't know exactly at what point in the writing process she drew this sketch, but I can imagine her sort of tracing the character's paths through these rooms. But yeah, Mackenzie is right. It does not match exactly. But it's a relatively rare thing that we get an author drawing the world in which these characters exist. So, Mackenzie, we've got the tower which we're going to get to in much more detail. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what this looks like if you turn the picture on its side? Well, it kind of looks like um, a person, right? With yeah. the the library and the tower as the head and then the stairs as like the spine of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, except the only weird thing is the kitchen, which is like almost totally separate from the rest of the drawing. Yeah. So that wouldn't have been unusual for a house in the Victorian era. Um, In fact, sometimes the kitchen 
I mean, I'm sure you don't need me to explain this to you um, since you're the Victorianist and not me. But um, for the folks at home, the kitchen was very often a separate building just so that if there was a fire, it wouldn't burn the whole house down. I didn't know that. I love it. Yeah. The Victorians were not good at a lot of things. In fact, they were not particularly good at fire safety, but this is one area in which they <laughs> thought ahead. So I, I think I've said before, I took a seminar with Ruth Franklin and she was the one who told me about the tower is the head type thing. She said that you can even take it as far as if the tower is the head, the stairs and the conservatory are the esophagus and intestinal tract. And it kind of stops there because there's a blockage. So I don't really know where we're going with that logic, but there is this idea of the house as, as something that devours you. One of the few things, and again, I'm being very judgy because I haven't actually watched it because I will not lower myself to watch it. Um, one of the very few things that I like about the Netflix version of Hill House is that the logo is the bottom half is a woman's face, the top half is the house. So I think you should watch it. That'll be our Patreon at, uh, only episode at the end, although we don't Love have a Patreon. But if you would like to give either of us money, please do. We need it. But yeah, so it's not a particularly original idea to have the house be a representation of the people who built it. In fact, we're going to see that in just a minute. But this is Shirley's sketch of the house. And so they're talking about the house. And we have the second entrance of Mackenzie's favorite character, Mrs. Dudley. So they have taken a little bit too long at breakfast. Good morning, Mrs. Dudley, Luke said. I clear off at 10. The dishes are supposed to be back on the shelves. I take them out again for lunch. I set out lunch at one, but first the dishes have to be back on the shelves. So Mrs. Dudley is very much like a robot. And then Theodora starts needling her just a little bit. Under Mrs. Dudley's eye, Theo deliberately lifted her cup and finished the last of her coffee, then touched her mouth with her napkin and sat back. Splendid breakfast, she said conversationally. Do the dishes belong to the house? What do you think about that? Well, the dishes are the thing that the sisters were fighting over, right? Wow. I, yeah. Yeah. I never thought of that. So it's like, I, th I feel like she's trying to get at like, are these the dishes? Huh. And what do you know about what happened? I have never realized that. That's great. Yeah. So Theo is trying to access the story of Hill House, and she's also just sort of ribbing Mrs. Dudley. She's trying to get her to break. How well does that go? Not very well. My girl is steadfast. Yes, Mrs. Dudley does not break. She does later on in the novel in a very, very bizarre way, but we're not there quite yet. I can't wait. All right, so they start to tour the house. They go through the game room, which has stuffed animal heads everywhere. And then they get to the tower. Now, Mackenzie, can you tell us what room is in the tower? The library. Yeah, the library. So can you read for us, please, on pages 75 and 76, Eleanor's very bizarre reaction to this room? I can't go in there, Eleanor said, surprising herself, but she could not. She backed away, overwhelmed with the cold air of mold and earth, which rushed at her. My mother, she said, not knowing what she wanted to tell them, impressed herself against the wall. And then this is page 76. 
Eleanor, Theodora said, are you all right now? It's a perfectly awful room and you are right to stay out of it. Eleanor stood away from the wall. Her hands were cold and she wanted to cry, but she turned her back to the library door, which the doctor propped open with a stack of books. I don't think I'll do much reading while I'm here, she said, trying to speak lightly, not if the books smell like the library. What is going on? She's having some kind of like intense physical reaction, right? It's not just emotional. She's like yeah. kind of totally um, frozen with fear. Mm -hmm. And she started saying my mother. It's unclear whether that's just like a response to be like, I was very sheltered or whether there's actually something related to her mother here. But also like sheltered from what? It's a library. Well, and then she talks about the smell. Yeah. And But then the doctor says, I hadn't noticed a smell. So mm. it's like the, we're starting to even doubt the like sensory experiences of the characters and what's yeah. true and what's not. Yeah. But Theo agrees with her. Eleanor, it's a perfectly awful room and you were right to stay out of it. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here. We have Eleanor not being able to go into the library. My mother, dash, end quote. So she can't quite articulate why she can't go in there. Of course, because she is herself. It has something to do with her mother. But we also know that in the history of the house, this is the room where supposedly the companion committed suicide. And that's what I think is interesting is that if you were just reading the scene, you would say, oh, well, Eleanor knows that that's where the companion died. And so she kind of is that memory is infused with the space, right? Mm -hmm. But we also have the scene of everyone coming to Hill House and without knowing the history, they immediately are like, bad, bad, bad. There's something bad here, right? Yeah. So there's like this dualness of like, it's both the real memory and knowledge of what happened in the room, but there's also something bigger that's causing that physical reaction, even without that knowledge. Yeah. So this is the first time although it will not at all be the last, where we see Eleanor have a very, very violent reaction to things that other people don't tend to freak out about. But we do have the validation of Theodora saying, yeah, you're right, it's bad in there. I've seen sort of two different schools of thought when it comes to why Eleanor cannot go into this room. I cannot remember where I have read it. I will try to find it in the show notes. One scholar, or at least one, I'm sure more, have pointed out that Eleanor cannot go into the library because it smells like mold and earth, and that reminds her of burying her mother. My own school of thought is that Eleanor cannot go into the library because it reminds me of, or reminds her of her mother, because she used to have to read to her mother. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know how correct that theory is because I just made it up, but I would be very surprised if nobody else in the history of Hill House scholarship has ever pointed that out. I also feel like the way that Eleanor responds to the knowledge of the suicide, where she was like, I forget what she says exactly. She's like, she, she had to do that. Or like, mm -hmm. she, you know, you know what I mean? Like just the way she talked about it and the way she talks about her like years of misery. Mm -hmm. Like I have to think that she, thought of suicide in some way right and so that kind of being confronted with that reality could be something to do with it too like this was the space where that person made that choice 
Yeah. Or did they? Because again, oh, Dr. Yeah. Montague says it's just gossip. We don't know. Of course, Jackson is planting one of Chekhov's guns here. Um, we know that there is something with the tower that in order for the narrative to progress and the whole Eleanor needs to go in there, she does eventually. There's one more thing with the tower that I'm going to sort of drop and then we'll move on from and come back to it later. One of the preeminent motifs in one of Shirley's other books, which I've actually never read, Hangs a Man, is tarot. Are you familiar at all with tarot? Um, a little bit. I was like a witchy child. Like I was very into that stuff. Um, and so I had a tarot deck and then two summers ago I planned a murder mystery with my fiance. It's something my, my friends do. And, um, it was like coven themed. And so all of the characters were assigned a tarot card, Hmm. but that's my only experience. Who got the tower? I think it was the murderer, actually. Huh. Was that on purpose or it was just random? So we looked at the descriptions of them, like the one line descriptions and kind of assigned them. But, you know, at some point, somebody's got to be the fool and somebody's, you know, you got to. Yeah. You got to sign them somehow. So we will come back to that because we know that Shirley definitely was very familiar with tarot. In fact, that was, as I said, the underpinning for one of her earlier novels, Hangs a Man. So we're going to come back to that. So they move on from the tower. They kind of just say, oh, that's weird. And then Theodora points out something that the doctor has been waiting for somebody to say. Are there two front doors? Am I just mixed up? The doctor says, no, there's only one front door, the one you came in yesterday. Then why can't Eleanor and I see the tower from our bedroom window? Our rooms look out over the front of the house. And yet the doctor laughs. Clever Theodora. This is why I wanted you to see the house by day. Come, sit on the stairs while I tell you. So this is where we're starting to get into something that, Mackenzie, you mentioned earlier, the geometric wrongness of the house. So, Mackenzie, can you please read for us the doctor's explanation of the geometry of Hill House? Have you not wondered at our extreme difficulty in finding our way around? An ordinary house would not have had the four of us in such confusion for so long. And yet, time after time, we choose the wrong doors. The room we want eludes us. Even I have had my troubles. He sighed and nodded. I dare say, he went on, that old Hugh Crane expected that someday Hill House might become a show place, like the Winchester House in California or the many octagon houses. He designed Hill House himself, remember, and I have told you before, he was a strange man. Every angle, and the doctor gestured toward the doorway, every angle is slightly wrong. Hugh Crane must have detested other people and their sensible squared away houses because he made his house to suit his mind. Angles which you assume are the right angles you are accustomed to and have every right to expect are true are actually a fraction of a degree off in one direction or another. I am sure, for instance, that you believe that the stairs you are sitting on are level because you are not prepared for stairs which are not level. They moved uneasily, and Theodora put out a quick hand to take hold of the balustrade as though she felt she might be falling. Or actually on a very slight slant toward the center shaft. The doorways are all a very little bit off-center. That may be, by the way, the reason the doors swing shut unless they are held. I wondered this morning whether the approaching footsteps of you two ladies upset the delicate balance of the doors. 
Of course, the results of all these tiny aberrations of measurement add up, adds up to a fairly large distortion in the house as a whole. Okay. Talks about any of that. It's kind of strange because Hugh Crane is thinking about his house as he's building it as a show house, or he they they're they're suggesting he might. But kind of like when you're thinking about the house you want to live in, I guess for me, I'm thinking, what's my experience going to be in this house? Like, how am I going to enjoy this house? How am I going to live in this house? How am I going to go kind of day to day, right? But it seems like Ukraine is like, how can I make my house disturbing to those that visit it, Hmm. right? And so it's this strange desire to decide in advance how people are going to respond to this thing that you create mm-hmm. i also feel like hugh is being like i'm not like other boys <laughs> by like making his house like 10 degrees off right yeah so he's like all these other stupid boys with their regular houses with right angles like i'm not like them i'm different <laughs> i just love that the way he's different is so insidious kind of, right? It's not as if you go to the house and you see, oh my God, this place is a mathematical nightmare. It's very, very subtle. Everything is slightly not right. You remember when Eleanor first sets foot in the blue room, she sort of clocks that that wall, there's something with that wall. It goes a little bit too far. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something is not right here. So one of the things that Dr. Montague cites in this paragraph is the Winchester Mystery House. Do you know anything about the Winchester house? No, I don't know anything about it. Okay, so I will pull it up here. So the Winchester house is in San Jose, California. Oh, as we can see here, it's their 100th anniversary. Uh, So it would have started around 1923. Although that was probably when they opened as a museum because I know that the house was built before that. So the Winchester Rifle Company was something very popular in the Civil War era, and it was also very popular in the eradication of Native Americans from the Western lands of the United States. And so Sarah Winchester was married to the son, I believe, of the founder of the Winchester Company. He died tragically. All their kids died tragically. And Sarah, because she was a Victorian, held a seance, which, as you know, were very popular among the Victorians. And in this seance, they supposedly contacted a spirit of some kind who communicated to her that the ghosts of the people who were killed by your husband's rifles are trying to hurt you. They already got your husband. They already got your kids. They're coming for you. The only way to stop them is to buy land and build a house that is meant to confuse the spirits. So, To this day, you can visit the Winchester House in California. It's very much a sort of a fun house, although it's not a fun house. Um, Stairways lead to nowhere. You open up doors and there's nothing there. The point of the Winchester Mystery House was for Sarah Winchester to never stop building this house, sleep in a different bedroom every night, create an environment where it is very, very difficult to find anyone. And it seems that Hugh Crane has sort of taken a page out of Sarah Winchester's book. So Shirley was, in fact, very fascinated with the Winchester house. We know that we or she had uh, postcards about it. Keep in mind that Hugh Crane has created a house that is very, very difficult to navigate. We'll see why that might be in just a few minutes. 
So as Dr. Montague describes the architectural wrongness of this place, Eleanor says something very interesting. What happens when you go back to a real house? I mean, uh, well, a real house. What do you think? The way that Jackson writes it, it's like she's trying to convey that Eleanor is embarrassed by the question, and yet it's still like a an important question to her, right? Yeah. With the stuttering. I mean, uh, well, a real house. Yeah. I think she's trying to get at, this isn't a fake house. Like, it's obviously is here. Like, mm. people lived in it. But there's something about it that is part of an unreality. And of course, it's tied up with her bizarre ideas about family and her mother. But I feel like so much of what we're talking about with Eleanor this episode comes back to just, yeah, it's weird. And as we go on, unfortunately, that is the only conclusion that we're going to be able to come to in a lot of places. Yeah, it's weird. So, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Um, Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, uh, Luke's theory? It must be like coming off shipboard, Luke said. After being here for a while, your sense of balance could be so distorted that it would take you a while to lose your sea legs or your hill house legs. Could it be, he asked the doctor, that what people have been assuming were supernatural manifestations were really only the result of a slight loss of balance in the people who live here? The inner ear, he told Theodora wisely. It must certainly affect people in some way, the doctor said. We have grown to trust blindly in our senses of balance and reason, and I can see where the mind might fight wildly to preserve its own familiar stable patterns against all evidence that it was leaning sideways. What do you think? We want a rational explanation for this thing we've been feeling, right? You know, it's a fairly predictable, oh, something is weird physically about the house, maybe that make something in our brain go, uh-oh, danger, when it's really just the wrongness of the geometry. Do you think there's any validity in that? I don't know. I kind of think yes. Like, you know, your brain is, like, constantly taking in data that it doesn't think about consciously. And so, like, that makes sense to me. The way the house is made in a physical sense is going to cause certain feelings. Like mm -hmm. you feel that when you go into a house with a really short ceiling or a really tall ceiling, right? Yeah. It changes the way you feel about it. But I mean, obviously a supernatural book. I'm like, fuck off Luke with your stupid science. It's interesting that you say that Shirley herself is on record saying that there are no ghosts in Hill house. She does not say that she espouses Luke's theory, but she does say that there are no ghosts which we can come back to as we move on. So Luke says, well, maybe it's just your inner ear. You know, your balance is off. Therefore, your lizard brain puts you on your guard. Could be, but maybe not. I just want to flag where doc the doctor says, our own stable patterns are fighting against evidence in Hill House that we are leaning sideways. I think this is really a metaphor for the way morality also works in Hill House, as we're going to see in just a minute, the way that we understand the world to work, the way that we understand people to behave, if you try to map that onto the architecture and the history of Hill House, it ain't going to work. Remember, one of the first things that we learned about Hill House, in fact, actually the very first thing we learned about Hill House, Hill House, not sane, stood by itself among its hills. So I think the oddness of the architecture 
is a metaphor for the oddness of the people who live there. So in their journey through Hill House, they reach a room, and in this room is something very, very bizarre. And Mackenzie, can you please read for us how these characters react to this very, very odd thing? It's not there, Theodora said, weak and laughing. I don't believe it's there. She shook her head. Eleanor, do you see it too? How, Eleanor said helplessly. I thought you would be pleased. The doctor was complacent. One entire end of the drawing room was in possession of a marble statuary piece. Against the mauve stripes and flowered carpet, it was huge and grotesque and somehow whitely naked. Eleanor put her hands over her eyes and Theodora clung to her. I thought it might be in intended for Venus rising from the waves, the doctor said. Not at all, said Luke, finding his voice. It's St. Francis curing the lepers. No, no, Eleanor said. One of them is a dragon. It's none of that, said Theodora roundly. It's a family portrait, you sillies. Composite. Anyone would know it at once. That figure in the center, that tall, undraped, good heavens, masculine one, that's old Hugh patting himself on the back because he built Hill House. And his two attendant nymphs are his daughters. The one on the right who seems to be brandishing an ear of corn is actually telling about her lawsuit. And the other one, the little one on the end, is the companion. And the one on the other end is Mrs. Dudley done from life, Luke said. Okay. The joke at the end is that Mrs. Dudley posed nude for a statue. Um, and this is the first of many, many times I'm going to ask you this question. What the hell is going on? It's a big old statue, isn't it? Yes, it is. Big old, but big old naked guy. Is it? Like you think I'm, you don't know what the gender of the statue is? Well, we don't even know what this thing is. Nobody can agree on what the statue is of. Uh, Dr. Montague says it's Venus, and Luke says no, it's St. Francis curing the lepers. Eleanor said no, it's a dragon. And then Theodora provides her own description, which I think is very, very telling and we're going to look at in more detail this very bizarre it's not there i don't believe it's there eleanor do you see it too what it's huge and grotesque one of my favorite things in the world the grotesque somehow whitely naked eleanor put her hands over her eyes i love that so eleanor 32 years old sees a naked statue and reacts the way a five-year-old does when she sees somebody kiss in the movies <laughs> she puts her hands over her eyes we will never solve the debate of what the hell this statue is however i would like to put forward a theory that i very firmly believe in you do not have to agree with me please feel free to email us kelly at the heart of the house dot blog and tell me all the reasons why i'm wrong i think that there is something very very dark going on here theodora says it's a family portrait anyone would know it at once that figure in the center that tall undraped Good heavens, masculine one, that's old Hugh. Why does Theodora say good heavens? He's got a big, yeah. big dong. <laughs> yes. Um, Hugh Crane has, if we believe Theodora, commissioned a naked portrait of himself with a, I picture almost cartoonishly large penis. Standing next to him are his daughters. And she describes them as nymphs. When was Lolita published? I want to say Lolita was 49. Let me see. Was uh, that, I mean, is that part of it, right? The nymphettes is like. Definitely. Uh, Lolita. Okay. Lolita was 55. Hill House, I believe. Yeah. Hill House is 59. It is entirely plausible. In fact, probably likely that Jackson would have read Lolita. 
So that's that's at least a part of it, right? It's associated with pedophilia. Why the fuck would he have this in his house? I guess the I think the only other reading that I don't even I'm not even convinced of is all the wives, maybe. Yeah. Like and seeing seeing women women as children or as servants is the only other thing I can think of. Theodora, she gets cut off by Luke, who has to get his joke in. So she's naming all these people that may be in the statue. Again, we don't know. Jackson does not describe the statue for us. We only see the characters react to it. And so the door is purposely left very, very open for us to understand what exactly this thing is. I did not think that the implication was that Hugh Crane was molesting his daughters the first time I read this. I think it now, but that's only because I've read to the end. Um, We'll get there. So it is never confirmed. Again, I want to say it is only my theory. It is never confirmed. Hugh Crane did not write like, yes, I I was abusing my daughters, but um, I think the evidence is pretty strong and we'll see as we get there a little bit later on. This insane, bizarre statue, Theo says, it's possible that he used it to scare his children with. Yikes. So Theodora starts to dance. Uh, she says, Hugh Crane, would you like to dance with me? I'll repeat. She says, Hugh Crane, would you like to dance with me? Remember that because it's going to matter later. The doctor says, remember what happened to Don Juan. Now, I don't really know the story of Don Juan, but I know enough to know that it involves a statue coming to life. So I did some Googling. In the Mozart version, Don Giovanni in the opera, Don Juan encounters the statue of a man he killed because he wanted to sleep with the man's daughter. And the statue comes to life and drags him to hell. And then something bizarre happens, which I feel like I've said 15 times in this episode. And I will continue to say, because it's not getting less weird from here. Mackenzie, can you read the paragraph on the top of page 81 for us, please? Theodora pulled at Eleanor's hair. Race you around the veranda, she said, and darted for the doors. Eleanor, with no time for hesitation or thought, followed, and they ran out onto the veranda. Eleanor, running and laughing, came around a curb of the veranda to find Theodora going in another door and stopped breathless. They had come to the kitchen, and Mrs. Dudley, turning away from the sink, watched them silently. Okay. What do you find weird about that? Eleanor is being a silly baby. (laughs) Yeah. They're like little kids, like little sisters running around, and then they're caught by, like, their, like, governess. This is one of the first times where we start to see what I at least think of as a layering of past and present, right? We see them maybe taking on the characteristics of these two little girls and it's very interesting that it is not Eleanor who initiates it Theodora pulls at Eleanor's head hair racing around the veranda and Eleanor does and they're running and they're laughing and they come into the kitchen and there's Mrs. Dudley Mrs. Dudley walks away it's a nice kitchen Eleanor said in my mother's house the kitchen was dark and narrow and nothing you cooked there ever had any taste or color Eleanor and Jackson, because she does this all over the text, is associating food, home, cooking with the feminine. And this idea that the things that are cooked in a home taste like the house, which I imagine them doing like Willy Wonka and licking the wallpaper, but obviously that's not what they're doing. Um, We see this again in We Have Always Lived in the Castle. 
the house is essentially destroyed and falling apart, but the kitchen is bustling and Constance, who is the sister of the narrator, is a great cook. And she's constantly making all these really extravagant things, even though they apparently don't have all that much money or all that much room to cook. Once again, a very bizarre detail. What's weird about Mrs. Dudley's kitchen? There's too many doors. Yeah. Not only is it that Mrs. Dudley is going to be able to escape, but if there are that many doors, you never know when something's going to come in at you. So we've had to cut for a minute because of a fuzzy interruption, but he has been curtailed. And Mackenzie is going to read for us another weird thing. Luke and the doctor were standing at the veranda looking out over the lawn. The front door was oddly close beyond them. Behind the house, seeming almost overhead, the great hills were muted and dull in the rain. Eleanor wandered along the veranda, thinking that she had never before known a house so completely surrounded. Like a very tight belt, she thought. Would the house fly apart if the veranda came off? She went what she thought must be the great part of the circle around the house, and then she saw the tower. It rose up before her suddenly, almost without warning, as she came around the curb of the veranda. It was made of gray stone, grotesquely solid, jammed hard against the wooden side of the house with the insistent veranda holding it there. Hideous, she thought, and then thought that if the house burned away someday, the tower would still stand, gray and forbidding over the ruins, warning people away from what was left of Hill House, with perhaps a stone fallen here and there so owls and bats might fly in and out and nest among the books below. Halfway up the windows, began thin angled slits in the stone and she wondered what it would be like looking down from them and wondered that she had not been able to enter the tower i will never look down from those windows she thought and tried to imagine the narrow iron stairway going up and around inside high on top was a conical wooden roof topped by a wooden spire it must have been laughable in any other house but here in hill house it belonged gleeful and expectant, awaiting perhaps a slight creature creeping out from the little window onto the slanted roof, reaching up to the spire, knotting a rope. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. Thoughts about that? Eleanor, I feel like, just keeps projecting herself onto the suicidal, or what we think is the suicidal companion, right? Yeah. Like, she can't go in the library, now she's imagining she first she's like I will never look from those windows but then she's like it's waiting for me you know what I mean mm-hmm. so it's this like tension within her of refusing to imagine herself that way but also being unable to not imagine herself that way yeah this is one of the first times we see Eleanor do what I call a mind meld which is where she starts thinking about either what the house is feeling or what the people who lived in the house at any given point must have been feeling. We notice the return of her ellipses here. The last time we saw the ellipses was when she was fantasizing about maybe meeting a handsome smuggler when she first arrived at Hill House. And the ellipses came because she did not have language for what came after that. Because remember, she has no concept of sex. Although I'm sure she knows it exists. She's just never had it. We see it again here with the companion, right? The ellipsis represents what Eleanor cannot think through. So the tower is terrible. And this brings us back to what I wanted to talk about before. So we mentioned the tower 
We mentioned the tower in tarot, which is very hard to say. Can you say it? The tower in tarot. I think it, it's, it's different for you because you say tarot and I say tarot, tower, tarot. Like there's tarot. no reason why T-O and T-A should make the same sound, but in my New York <laughs> accent, they do. So anyway, um, I did some research into the tower tarot card uh, and in tar- tarot, God damn it. The tower is usually depicted getting struck by lightning and bursting into flames and the people inside of it are jumping out the windows. And so it is not necessarily a card you want to pull. In 1910, there was this guy, A.E. Waite, and he published what became known as the pictorial key to the tarot. So essentially the tarot dictionary about the tower. He wrote that the tower, when it is upright, represents misery, distress, indigence, adversity, calamity, disgrace, deception, ruin. It is a card in particular of unforeseen catastrophe. Sounds like fun. If you pull the tower upside down, negligence, absence, distribution, carelessness, distraction, apathy, nullity, vanity. Mackenzie, looking at both of these lists of words, who do they sound like? Eleanor and Theo. Yeah. Can you specify which is which for the folks at home? Eleanor, misery, distress, disgrace. (laughs) Theo, negligence, absence, carelessness, apathy, vanity. Yes. So I don't know if Jackson was thinking of this. I don't know if, as I said, I'm reading too much into this, but I think it is very, very interesting that the tower tarot card, which I'm almost sure Jackson was thinking about as she was writing, flipped both ways, represents Theodora and Eleanor. They are foils of one another. In fact, Eleanor thinks, I think a little bit before this, Eleanor thinks that Theodora is thoughtlessly, luckily lovely. That is very much the reverse tower. Can I throw out a thought? Yeah. So I feel like I have been reading Eleanor as someone who does not know what it's like to be a person and is like a fresh egg, like starting her life. Uh Right. I keep saying that. Yeah. I guess I, and this is just from reading those descriptions of the tower, right? Like disgrace, deception and ruin. I'm like, well, I guess those don't really describe Eleanor as I've been thinking about her. Mm -hmm. Unless she is thinking about this weekend as like her last hurrah, you know what I mean? So like she stole the car and knows that like there are going to be consequences to that. And so she's like, I'm just going to have this final moment because just because she keeps having this like suicidal ideation, like she keeps putting herself in those terms. And so whether she's consciously or subconsciously thinking about it, I guess that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Eleanor has not thought very much about what comes after Hill House. Yeah. We'll see her do that later on, but she's not there yet. So this is a scene that is dramatized very well, I think, in the 1960s version of the movie that's just called The Haunting. In fact, if you look up the trailer on YouTube, which I'll put in the show notes, first of all, Luke is played by the same guy who plays Riff in West Side Story. Uh, Russ Hamlin. Yeah. This scene is in the, the trailer for it. So Eleanor is looking and she's like, oh, and she almost faints. 
This damnable house, Luke said. You have to watch it every minute. So we've heard so far of the house being compared to a mother. I think this is the first time we see it get compared to a child. I want to keep thinking about this as we move forward. As we're going to see, and I'm not going to get too spoilery because, in fact, we're going to see this in the very next episode. If Hill House was a child, it would be a leash kid. Oh, no. (laughs) What's your position on leash kids? I'm pro. You're pro leashing kids up? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Me too, I, just say, but... I just think it's totally rational to be like, I'm at Disney World or I'm in New York City or I'm in any city mm-hmm. and you can't run away from me. I think that's totally rational. So you're pro leash kid for the kids protection. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I don't know much about what people think about leash kids. Is that a hot take? No. So I... I I know that there are several people who are like, I would never put my kid on a leash. And I used to be one of them. And then I worked at a children's store. And (laughs) one of my favorite things that I ever saw happen was this little nightmare child was running around wrecking shit. And while they were in the store, the mother bought a leash and put it on the kid as he screamed. And that was the moment that changed me from anti to pro leash kid. And it made me realize that maybe these kids aren't on leashes for their own safety. Maybe these kids are on leashes for the safety and sanity of everyone around them. I also think it's different. Like I would not put like an eight year old kid on a leash, but I would put like a three year old kid on a leash. I think all children should be kept on leash. <laughs> oh my God. Although you, you weren't a leash kid, were you? No, I was very precocious. Okay. I was very much an emotional leash kid. Yeah. Which I guess Eleanor is too. Um, I was very much like, I hated, and to this day, I'm 30 years old, I still hate if I go shopping with my mom and we're in line and she forgets something and she like she makes me wait as she runs back. And it doesn't make any sense because I have my own money now, but I used to hate when she would run back and get something because I thought that, I don't know, either she was never going to come back or I was going to get to the front and not have any money. Oh, my gosh. Did your mom do that? Like, oh, I forgot something. Hold the spot in line. Yes. And I actually, uh, this is funny. I had a a reoccurring nightmare of being in the checkout line with my mom. And it wasn't that she was running back, but it was that the grocery store was on fire and she wasn't noticing. And so (laughs) she was continuing to check out her groceries and the fire was coming from behind us. And I was like, we got to go. And she's like, no, we have to check out. (laughs) Did you hate going to the grocery store with your mom as a kid? Yes, but not as much as I hated going to Home Depot. What was wrong with Home Depot? I just hated it. I, like, hated it. (laughs) And I even, my mom would let me, like, go to the paint counter, and they had that little paint computer where you Uh could, like, design a room, which theoretically should have been really fun, and I just was, like, a fucking brat about it. I was like, I'm going to die here. Like, you got to get me (laughs) out of here. So Home Depot is your hill house? Yeah, so I I feel bad when I walk in there to this day. I'm like, I don't want to be here. I personally love Home Depot. Home Depot and Office Max, although I don't even know if they still have Office Max, calms my soul. What I do hate absolutely is TJ Maxx. Really? I hate TJ Maxx because my brother did karate when we were growing up. And 
when he did it, I was still young enough that I couldn't stay home alone. And so I would have to go with my mom to take my brother to karate. And I hated it. And there was a TJ Maxx in the same parking lot. And so to pass the time, we would go to TJ Maxx as he was in karate. And so to this day, I just associate TJ Maxx with doing something that I don't want to do. Um, wow. Not a Maxinista. I am Kelly. the anti-Maxinista. All right. We are very far from where we're supposed to be. So let's get back on track. So after Eleanor has her near fainting spell, they go and they have lunch. Do you remember what's for lunch? No. Souffle. Um, souffle. I've never had souffle. Have you? No. Yeah, me neither. I have a very vivid memory, though, since we're sharing childhood stories of the Madeline episode where they go to cooking school. And I don't remember whose souffle it was, but it kept deflating. Tragic. Theodora says a nervous chef can't make a good souffle. And Mrs. Dudley makes a great souffle. So I don't know what that says about her. But anyway, so the doctor suggests a regular afternoon rest might be more comfortable for all of us. So Theo says, I must take an afternoon nap. It may look funny when I get home, but I can always tell them it was part of my schedule at Hill House. So there's something going on here with how lazy the characters are. And I think what Jackson is attempting to do is tap into some of the tropes of languidness in the Victorian Gothic. So Mackenzie, as our resident Victorianist, can you talk a little bit about why people are so lazy in the, in the Victorian Gothic? I think certainly it has to do with class, right? If you were rich, you kind of had the luxury of being languid. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also just see it as kind of a reoccurring theme. Again, in those two novels I brought up earlier, Carmilla and Dracula, Carmilla is always like lazing about. Yeah. People think that she's ill. She's like very tired, very sleepy. And that scene is like very like sexy, especially I think from the, the narrator, right? To be so sleepy, so weak. And we see the same thing in Lucy and Dracula, especially as she's being feasted upon by mm -hmm. Dracula and as she's turning into a vampire herself or turning into some kind of creature. She's tired, she's pale, she needs blood transfusions, she can barely lift up her little finger. Um, and that's very attractive for all the men who are in love with her in that novel, of which there are several to be kind of, you know, to want to help her, to want to take care of her. It's associated with like femininity to be, to be weak and to need help. Yeah. I am reminded of something that I brought up when we took the Gothic together. And this is something I really mean. Is there ever anybody ugly in the Gothic or is this just a genre for sexy people? The bad people are often ugly because the Victorians mm -hmm. saw a link between like physical appearance and morality. Uh -huh. um, so even if someone is not, it's even if someone is plain, it's usually like the goodness still shines out of them. Mm -hmm. We have our like ugly king and queen though, Jane Eyre and Rochester, who are canonically well, that's true, yeah, foul-faced, which I love, and is never depicted correctly. Yeah, so I retract my previous statement. There are plenty of ugly people in the Gothic, but. Something that I'm thinking of in connection to Hill House is that we have no idea what Eleanor looks like. We never, ever, spoiler alert, learn what color hair she has, what color eyes she has. She could have three heads for all we know. 
it's interesting because it's not told in first person. Like I could mm. see that as like a narrative technique is like, if it's from Eleanor's perspective, then you would be seeing the other people and you could kind of leave that as a mystery, but because it's not, there is this narrative voice. It feels a purposeful omission. The only time I can think of where we get any sort of description of Eleanor comes later in the novel. One of the characters, and you can probably guess who it is, calls Eleanor drab. Moving right along, we get into our very weird toenail painting scene. So can you give us a rundown of what's happening during the afternoon nap or when they're supposed to be napping? What are Eleanor and Theo up to? So instead of napping, Eleanor is like, I'm going to go in Theo's bedroom with her and have a little gal pal slumber party moment, which like happy for you if that's what you both want. So she's like laying on the bed and she's taught like Theo is talking about how she loves, she says, I love decorating myself. I'd like to paint myself all over. Mm-hmm. And then she also is like, she's doing like the mean girl thing of like, you don't think half enough of such things, Eleanor. Like, it's like, you would be so pretty if you wore makeup kind of vibes, which Eleanor doesn't seem to take personally, which is funny, unless it's like supposed to be kind of under the surface. No, she laughs. Yeah, it starts to fall asleep. And when she wakes up, Theo has painted her toenails and Eleanor is super disturbed. Yeah, She says her feet are dirty and she's like, she hates that her feet are dirty and she doesn't want the toenail, the toenail polish to be there. Yeah. So you flagged one of the lines I wanted to talk about. I'd like to paint myself all over. So I'm going to say, remember that I said that. So <laughs> this is the makeover scene, right? This is the scene or it could has the potential to turn into the scene where I don't know if Eleanor wears glasses. She might where Eleanor takes off her glasses and is suddenly beautiful. That doesn't happen. Theodora's minuscule attempt to beautify Eleanor backfires tremendously. Theodora says, I dislike being with women of no color, which is its own weird comment. I think I will put red polish on your toes. So Eleanor initially consents. She laughs. She holds out her bare foot. Suddenly she freaks out. Can you read the paragraph, please, on the bottom of page 85? Shocked, Eleanor sat up and looked. Her feet were dirty and her nails were painted bright red. It's horrible, she said to Theodora. It's wicked, wanting to cry. Then, helplessly, she began to laugh at the look on Theodora's face. I'll go and wash my feet, she said. Okay, so Theo has made this sort of bitchy but jokey comment, like, oh, your feet are dirty. And Eleanor really really takes that to heart I mean we're always going back to mom right so I don't know if mom has criticized her or even if like again she the only control she had in the house was how clean stuff was or maybe if she didn't have that control right there's something about being clean or dirty which has a more significant signifier for Eleanor yeah and she associates it with morality so Theodora's like, all right, geez, my feet are dirty too, baby. Honest. Look. So Theodora being placed in the mother role. Anyway, Eleanor said, I hate having things done to me. Yikes. What? What I mean, she has an aversion to touch, but also an extreme, like, desire to be touched, right? Yeah. Which, 
I don't know. I hate having things done to me. I don't like to feel helpless. My mother, dash, end quote. Again, this might be me reading too far into things. The reason that I added this scene, we weren't supposed to do this scene today. The reason that I added it is because I wanted to talk about it in conjunction with the implication that Ukraine might have molested his daughters. Yeah. Again, that's my own engineering. It's my own hypothesis. It's a little bit hard for me to read that and not think that maybe Eleanor was being molested as well. I don't know. And I think we know that Eleanor had to read her mother romance novels, which alone like a form of abuse, right? That's not normal. Yeah. Again, this is totally my theory. If you disagree with it, please do let me know. I want you to disagree because I kind of don't want this to be true. Kind of feels like it is, though. What do you think? Do you think I'm nuts? No, I I mean, again, I think going back to that kind of tension between being repulsed by touch and also kind of desiring affection through touch is like a pretty clear indicator. If the touch from a parent was like perverted and disturbed, then that makes sense that that would, you would both fear it and want it. Moving on to slightly less bleak thinking. So Eleanor says, my mother, and then Theodora interrupts her. Your mother would have been delighted to see you with your toenails painted red. They look nice. Eleanor looks at her feet again. It's wicked. It makes me feel like I look like a fool. Theodora says, you've got foolishness and wickedness somehow mixed up. What do you think about that? I mean, it's a commentary on what it means to be evil, right? Like this idea of like, is it only foolishness or not knowing better mm-hmm. or, is, or can the two be conflated? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel like I look like a fool because I have red toenails. I, the thing that just popped into my head is the gift from the office or the meme. Um, I noticed you're wearing open toed shoes. Since when did you become a whore? <laughs> it feels very much like that is in line with Eleanor's way of thinking. It's wicked. Right. So Eleanor, according to Theodora, and I think Theodora is right, has foolishness and wickedness somehow mixed up. So it's a very, very puritanical way of thinking. Then she says to Theodora, no matter what I try to say, you make it sound foolish. Thoughts about that? I mean, again, we're starting to see that tension between Theodora and Eleanor really start to bubble. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, the idea of like, Theodora is being mean to Eleanor, mm-hmm. but also like what is Eleanor projecting onto every interaction, right? Yeah. Is people laughing at her? Yeah. Is she laughing at me? Eleanor wondered. Yeah. One thing I want to flag. Um, remember, trip no further, pretty sweeting journeys end in lovers meeting. The sonnet that Eleanor constantly repeats to herself. Do you remember what Shakespeare play it's from? Twelfth night. Yeah, correct. You have a great memory. Twelfth night. The character who sings it is named the fool. And I know that in Shakespeare's day, the fool meant jester. Mm -hmm. I do think there's something there. Eleanor constantly worries that either I'm a fool or they think I'm foolish or I'm making a fool of myself. I don't think it's a coincidence that her theme song is sung by a character named the fool. Well, and the fool is also a tarot card. Is it? Yeah, it means like new beginnings. 
Really? Yeah. Very interesting. Let's see. Let's do some Googling. Okay, upright, beginnings, innocence, leap of faith, originality, spontaneity, reversed, chaos, folly, lack of direction, naivete, poor judgment, stupidity. God damn. <laughs> there she goes again. Which direction is the fool at this point, do you think? I think, honestly, it is upright, but then Eleanor thinks it's reversed, right? She always thinks of herself as stupid when she really just hasn't experienced that much life. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Bridget and I, and she's probably going to listen to this, so shout out, Bridget. We have this thing um, because we are both, because we were born in the 90s, very anxious people. And we both watched the most psychologically scarring SpongeBob episode of all time, which I think you will agree is the rock bottom episode. Do you remember that? Is that one? the one in the different city? Yes, with the buses. I agree. I think that one's the most psychologically harmful. The one that has like imprinted <laughs> itself on me is the butterfly one. What butterfly one? I don't remember that. Where there's a butterfly in Sandy's tree dome. Little dome and it's like an animated butterfly uh -huh. but then when you zoom in on it it like it zooms in on a real life butterfly to the like center of it and it's like really freaky somehow uncanny yeah I used to hate that when they would show like real people or the human pirate oh yeah creepy yeah. So now that we can all agree um, that SpongeBob is psychologically scarring, my friend Bridget and I have this thing where we get very stressed out if we are either lost on public transportation or stuck in traffic or something. And we get in this thing that we call too stupid to live mode. Like for Aww. some reason, if I'm lost on a bus, I'm too stupid to live. And oh, so no. I can recognize that that is my own pathology. I think Eleanor is perpetually stuck in too stupid to live mode and then theo says something which really upsets eleanor i think you ought to go home can you read the last paragraph for us please is she laughing at me eleanor wondered has she decided that i am not fit to stay i don't want to go she said and theodora looked at her again quickly and then away and touched eleanor's toes softly the polish is dry she said I'm an idiot. Just something frightened me for a minute. She stood up and stretched. Let's go look for the others, she said. Okay. Do you agree with Theo at this point? Do you think Eleanor should go home? I mean, what is home, right? That's the problem. It's yeah. like, do I think going back to her sister's house is going to help her? No. Do I think she should stay at Hill House? Also, probably no. <laughs> well, remember... Theodora thinks that Eleanor has a nice little place of her own. No, yeah. It's so, like the problem is that the reality is much bleaker. Yeah. She's much less lonely here than she is anywhere else. That is how we end for the day. Now, questions for you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. As you've seen, we are starting to run into places where, as I said earlier, the best we can come up with is, uh-huh, like it's weird. If you have any theories on anything that we talked about this episode, please send them our way. I will read them on the next episode. So some questions you might want to answer. Who's the ghost? What's with the statue? And then the last one I have written here is, why is Eleanor like this? Thoughts on any of these? 
She's just a baby. <laughs> Why yeah. are you such a silly little baby? I'm starting to, I have always been firmly pro Eleanor. Frankly, and this is not anything that I ever thought I would say on the internet. If I had to say what fictional character I've ever encountered that is the most like me, it is Eleanor. I don't have the mommy issues that she has, but I do have a lot of the social anxiety. Yeah. I can see how she would be very annoying to be around. Oh, yeah. So, Especially as, like, a 32-year-old woman. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I, if you're if you're 19 and you're like, is everyone laughing at me? Yeah. Okay. At 32, which, again, I, I can – this reading, especially the beginning where she was like, I'm going to be really calm today and no one's going to notice me. Like, I really relate to that. But like, again, you got to hand, you got to handle your shit, girl. I've had students in the past say that Eleanor is a narcissist. We'll pick up on that next time because I don't think that they're entirely wrong. I don't think she's a malignant narcissist, if we can borrow a TikTok term, but there is something Freudian about that. We'll talk about Freudian narcissism next time. Woohoo! Speaking of next time, we are going to read in the Penguin edition up to page 100. So I mentioned earlier that this is a novel in which things happen very, very unevenly. So we're on what, page 87? And nothing really supernatural has happened. There will be supernatural stuff, a lot of supernatural stuff in the next episode, even though we're only reading 13 pages. I can't wait. Thoughts on what's going to happen? I think Theo is going to yell at Eleanor in a way that is too much. Mm-hmm. We got to get something with Dr. Montague, right? I feel like I still, I want more of him. There will be more Dr. Montague. And Luke's just going to be a silly little lad. <laughs> I making just picture, sausage jokes. I just pictured Luke as the little lad from the Starbucks commercials. <laughs> or oh, not Starbucks, Starburst. So if you're not in the Penguin version for next time, we're going to read from, yeah. So we're going to read from chapter four, section four to the end of chapter four. And again, next time there will be ghostly manifestations. Next time things will get spooky. Do, 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 do. Okay. Mackenzie, any final thoughts or comments for the folks at home? I am ready for this house to be haunted as I was promised. Do I'm you excited. Think it is? Uh, I don't know. So Yeah, I think it is. I think it is too. Um, all right. So thank you once again for joining us here at the heart of the house. I know I mentioned my beloved sundial very much in this episode or more than I should. I feel like I'm the only person I know who likes the sundial as much as I do. Mackenzie, you would really like the sundial because in fact, it is a lot like Knives Out. Ooh, I love Knives Out. It's my favorite film of all time. I know. Oh, thoughts on Jamie Lee winning. Um, I've not been keeping up with the awards cycle this year. There was a point where I would watch every film. I'm kind of anti-celebrity culture at the moment. I like Jamie Lee. I heard a lot of people say other people deserved it more. So I'm willing to trust them. Do you know what I'm referring to? Or do you think I just had a stroke? No, I know what you're referring to. I I feel sad for her and I'm very, very pro her. I was on the bus stop at Union Square once and a black SUV pulled up and I saw a lady leaning her chin on the window and it was just Jamie Lee Curtis. 
No, it was not. Yes, it was. I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of stared. And my sister said that I should have saluted like they did in Freaky Friday. I do love Jamie Lee Curtis. Are you a Freaky Friday fan? Oh, yeah. Do you remember, and you couldn't do this today, but the grandfather is losing his marbles a little. Um, Do you remember what he always thinks is happening? Was there an earthquake? He thinks it's possibly earthquake. And he lives in California. Is that really losing his marbles? So sometimes, in fact, I could do it to Rube now because he's in his cat tree. I'll grab him and go, earthquake! And I always think of the grandfather from Freaky Friday. Um, (laughs) And then as my sister says, he runs away and the stepdad goes, Alan, that's not our car. That is a great fictional band as well. Like all those songs were bops. <laughs> and Chad Michael Murray. Yeah, but I like him with his short light hair, not the long dark hair. I never thought Chad Michael Murray was attractive. Although he does say one of my all-time favorite movie cliches, not in that, but in a Cinderella story. Son, you're giving up your dream. I'm not giving up my dream, Dad. I'm giving up yours. <laughs> and he makes that with Hillary in the rain. Oh man. Waiting for you is like waiting for rain in the drought. Useless and disappointing. And then it, they kiss and it rains. So that's the solution to climate change. Hillary Duff. More kissing. You can save us all. All right. Well, thank you once again for joining us. And we will see you next time here on The Heart of the House. Bye.